Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. But you either knew that or you don't read the titles of your podcasts very closely because my name's in it. This is Crazy Money with Paul Ollinger. Self-explanatory. Hey, I've got a great interview for you today. My buddy, AJ Jane, who is a very successful retired insurance executive, is going to talk to us about the worst financial times of his life. AJ's been really, really successful. He's got all kinds of diplomas. He is the the consummate immigrant success story, but there were some pretty dark times that AJ shared with me not so long ago, and I was like, oh my God, I've got to get this on the podcast because I know it will be really useful to a lot of listeners. But before we jump into that, I want to tell you where I am. I'm sitting in my uh, home podcast studio slash office slash guest room over our garage. And I'm being looked at by these two French bulldogs. They're looking at me while I'm talking and they're looking at me like, what are you doing? Like, who are you talking to? You know, there's nobody else in here, right? Though there's a picture of this on my website, paulallinger.com slash podcast. You'll see it. But these dogs, am I the only one that feels this way about dogs? Now, and this may be very unpopular, but dogs are extraordinarily expensive. My wife hates it when I think like this, but it's true. Dogs are super expensive. You got to take them to the vet. You got to buy them. You got to feed them. But the thing that drives me the most crazy about dogs is the damage they do to rugs and furniture. These dogs are pretty house trained, but they're not totally house trained. And every time I walk in the door, I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to find? What am I going to find left behind? What kind of large stain on the carpet am I going to find? The carpet in our master bedroom looks like a Jackson Pollock painting that was left out in the rain. My wife's like, yeah, you spill coffee and wine on it just as often as they pee. Not net, no, I don't. No, I don't. And if I do, that's fine because I bought it. Uh, it's my carpet. Like seriously, the, uh, the entryway to our home looks like the floor of a peep show. It's just like my friends come over and like, Paul, what are you? What are you doing in your foyer? This is disgusting. I'm like, it's not me. It's these dogs. Anyway, I'm not sure why I'm sharing that other than to say these dogs are looking at me and this is the environment in which I'm recording this podcast and I don't know what you're doing. Are you taking a walk? Are you, uh, are you, are you walking your dog? Are you driving your kids to school, from school? If you're driving them from school, they're in the car. Hey, kids, how you doing? I'm going to try not to use profanity to the best of my ability during this podcast. All right. Hey, let's talk about AJ Jane. AJ Jane, my pal is a retired C-level insurance executive, former strategy consultant, and former professor of marketing at Southern Methodist University. Go ponies. He holds a PhD and MBA from SUNY Buffalo and two other degrees from prestigious universities in India. In other words, he's a very accomplished guy. And as I said, he's the consummate immigrant success story. Yet, for a few years in his early 40s, that would be the late 1990s, AJ faced existential economic catastrophe and marital collapse. He endured some pretty crazy hardships that looking from where we are today back, you wouldn't ever anticipate that AJ had to endure, but he did indeed do that. And on the brink of financial ruin, AJ rediscovered himself and committed to living a purposeful family-centric life. We recorded this episode in his very large, very beautiful home in one of the most affluent areas of Atlanta called Buckhead. And it's just really interesting meditation on the fact that careers don't always go in a straight line in one direction that is up. Sometimes they go in a straight direction down, but like for those of us who have always prioritized success and achievement and going back into school and stuff, you think, well, if I get A's, I'm going to go to a good college. You go to a good college, I'm going to get into a good graduate school. I get into a good graduate school, I'm going to go have a great professional career. And it's just one year I'm going to be a director, next year I'm going to be a vice president, year after that, or two years, three years, whatever, senior vice president, and on and on. Extrapolate that until you retire as CEO or whatever. That doesn't always happen. And sometimes it's our ambition that gets in our way and leads us down the wrong path. AJ's story is really worth listening to. His reflections on how it happened, how he got through it, I think are absolutely worth your time. And if you know somebody that has gone through an experience like this or is going through an experience like this, I hope you'll share this conversation with them because I think they'll get a lot of value out of it. Today, AJ is the founder of an organization called Feed a Billion, which he founded and now leads. It is a nutritional nonprofit program that helps prevent human trafficking caused by food insecurity. Since its inception in 2016, it has provided five and a half million meals to those in need in the developing world. And you can find out more about it at feedabillion.org. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoy my conversation with AJ Jane. You know, people want freedom. They want to become entrepreneurs because they want freedom and they don't want to work and so on. Let me tell you, when you literally have nothing that you have to do, it requires a level of discipline to want to do something. We don't train for No. You know, because we train for a job. We train for a paycheck. We train for creating a retirement nest egg. Yes. Okay. You do that. Then what do you do? That's why I'm doing this podcast. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. AJ, Jane, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you, Paul. AJ, I know you as a successful former insurance executive, and it's interesting because you recently shared a story with me that I think will be very useful to a lot of people. I want to talk about losing it all. Mm -hmm. You started a dot-com in... 1999. I want you to tell the story of what happened to the dot-com that you started. Yeah, so it was a very interesting time. I was in Indianapolis, and we saw an opportunity to create sort of an integrated platform to provide everything that the race fans needed. At the time, it was kind of fragmented. If you wanted to go to the races, you... This is auto racing, you mean? This is auto racing, yeah. Okay. So I started the company, got some investors involved. We didn't want to take a lot of money from the market because we felt that we could build the platform out. I wasn't taking any salary. I invested some of my own money. It was a wild ride because that was a time when we got into a G4 from one of our investors, picked up one of the race car drivers, took him to Orlando and arranged for a personalized golf lesson for him from David Ledbetter. Oh, good. And then flew another time in a jet, and we had the whole racetrack to us at uh, Rockingham, Mm -hmm. and we drove around in this 770-horsepower NASCAR car. And, you know, just through those experiences, I got to meet a lot of different people. You know, there's a guy by the name of Willie Weber, who's Michael Schumacher's agent. And, you know, we were on this yacht in somewhere in Spain and we backed it into this cove to pick him up. And he lives right next to Claudia Schiffer. And, you know, it was just, the valuations were insane. I was in London at a nightclub and there was a banker from Merrill Lynch who was begging me to escrow some of my equity with with them and he was going to give me eight to ten million dollars to do whatever i wanted to do with it Mm. and i fundamentally was uncomfortable with that because the valuations were insane you know wouldn't that be taking a little money off the table though at that point it would have or was he just trying to loan you money with the stock as collateral he was loaning but if the stock went down to zero then they were left hanging. There was no personal guarantee right. on the loan. So on paper, I had this huge net worth. Mm-hmm. How big did it get? It got in um, nine figures. Nice. Right? So on paper, it was all great. So we built the platform. We spent the time. We spent the money. I worked, you know, I worked very, very hard on that. And then... By the time we were ready to bring it out to the market to actually raise money and do something with it, it was early 2001, and the money had just completely evaporated. Right. Had dried out from the market. So long story short, we had to shut it down. So within a span of perhaps about maybe 12 months, I had spent so much money that my net worth had gone down to about negative $157,000. How did it get to negative $157,000? Because I had used credit cards that were in my personal name to support the operations of this little company that we had, because by the time it had been dwindling down, I kept incurring uh, these 
expenses. We had branding deals with CBS and it was crazy. Mm. It was crazy. And that ended up being a time when I ended up getting divorced. So all of a sudden... Wait, wait, wait. wait. Okay. So one month you have a net... Well, you have a, a paper value of nine figures or a hundred million dollars plus based on the percentage of the stock that you owned in this company that was valued at some crazy number. Crazy number, yeah. And then a few months later, everything stops and you come home to your house where your wife is and your two kids are and you have a net worth of negative $157,000. Right. I still have a spreadsheet that shows how much money I owed to each one of the credit cards because I ultimately had to settle with all of them by borrowing money from friends and paying all of that off. And this whole time, what was your wife telling you about the business? She was nervous because there was risk I was taking and there was no income coming in. Mm -hmm. So we were spending money from our savings. I took... And you're flying all over the world. I'm meeting with different people, building this. It was... It was a difficult time because we had two young kids. And, you know, and the other thing that happened was as things were winding down with this company, I, I tried to get a job or something that will generate income for the family. Mm -hmm. And it was a weird time because I interviewed with a pharmaceutical company because his daughter went to the same school where my kids went. So I went in to interview at the highest level of the company. They told me, you know, your credentials are amazing. We love you, but we don't know what to do with you. <laughs> then I had formerly worked at a consulting company, a major consulting company. And I interviewed with them again and they told me they didn't feel I had enough qualifications to do what I needed to do. Even though I have four degrees and I have a PhD in marketing and you know this job was about building a sales practice for Salesforce automation and, and CRM. And then there was another deal where I helped raise money and that company was Houston-based. They offered me a job to come on board signed the letter and they rescinded it within oh, I had bought tickets I was moving the family I mean it was just bizarre set of circumstances that you know when you try to think rationally about what was going on what happened you know after we moved you know I took on this place called the cottage which is a rental because we had to sell the house Wait, let's go back. Let's go back. You came home one day and your wife told you something. What'd she tell you? She said, um, I, I want to, I want to leave. And, uh, I remember that exactly where I was standing, where she was standing. And I said, where do you want to go? I thought she was talking about leaving to go somewhere. And she said, no, I want to leave, leave. And, you know, it took some time for it to sink in and, and we tried to make it work, but it just didn't. Did you know things were as bad at home as, I know you knew things were bad at work. Were you thinking about what was going on at home while you're trying to save the company? No, I didn't. And that's actually part of the issue is that I was not <laughs> sensitive paying attention. Enough. I was not paying attention. Yeah. Right. So, you know, the proverbial, we grew apart type of a thing. And what I was trying to do was really provide for the family yeah. and doing everything that I could. And it was a sinking ship that I was captaining. Yeah. You know, it ended up being that the ship sank. And so did my married life. And really going through that experience, what I realized was that everything that I had paid attention to up until that time that I thought was important was just slowly taken away. And the only thing that I had left was my 
two kids and the friends and family. Right. And all the other trappings of life were gone. How old were you at this point? I was 41. So you're 41. You have no job. You have 157000 in Correct. debt. Yeah. Negative net worth $157,000. You have two children at home. Were you able to hang on to the house? And what did you do? How did you come to terms with where you were? And how did you fight your way out of that? So, yes, we had to sell the house. We couldn't continue to live there. We got divorced. How I reconstructed it, to be honest with you, part of it is blurry to me because it was literally just surviving. And I can't completely reconstruct everything in detail. I've tried. Mm. There are pieces that I've not been able to add up. But I do remember the number of calls that used to come from the credit card companies, collection agencies, because I owed the money and I was not paying. I remember all the statements and things that would come in the mail. I'll just throw them into a box, which I didn't even look at. And because you, could, you had no way to pay it. I, exactly. I had no way of paying it, and I just didn't have the really the emotional strength probably to go through all of that because I was focused on the kids. I was doing everything that I could to just survive and, and make sure that the kids' lives were not affected and, and were affected to the least amount possible. And, you know, there is little things that I remember from that experience is, you know, one night at like, at like 11 o'clock at night, I realized that um, my son didn't have socks for going to school the next morning that I needed to do laundry. So, you know, I had to do laundry. And that's when I realized that my wife, my ex-wife, um, was doing so much work to keep everything going in the family, which I had never taken the time to acknowledge and appreciate. Because to me, it sounded like they were all small, small things. And as I was going through all of those experiences, I... I remember there was a moment when my daughter, who I don't think she remember, she will remember this, but she said to me, Papa, you're doing a good job being Papa. Mm. And that was a very touching, touching moment. It just validated for me that whatever I was doing and whatever my priority was is where it needed to be. And as an accomplished man at this point, you've been an executive for a while, you have, you have several degrees, very prestigious schools. Did you feel humiliated? Were you pissed off? Like what was going on in your head before she told you that you were doing a good job? Yeah, I was never angry. I didn't feel angry. I was, I felt betrayed because of the experience from not just this venture, but also the prior experience right before that where I had options which had were, were in the money and, and something happened with the parent company and I ended up losing all of that mm. money in the options that never came to be. There was a part of me that was scared, but funnily, there was a part of me for some reason, I never felt scared about money. There was never a moment where I felt that we were going to get screwed or there was no way of coming out of it. I had this absolute faith that everything will be fine. And I just kept going. You said you were scared. What were you scared about? Really, when I look back more than anything else, it was what will people think of me? Mm. Because, you know, here I did all of this and, you know, here I'm supposed to be the successful guy and, and I'm an immigrant, right? So you leave home and you come to America and you're supposed to be successful and you're supposed to make money. And I didn't. So there is that all that conflict and all that conversation going on in the head and at the same time you know all these calls are coming from the collection companies and i remember one night 
you know, late at night, I was just looking for guidance. I was looking for something, and, and I had gone and printed the forms for filing for personal bankruptcy. And I was just meditating, I don't remember, I, maybe two, three o'clock in the morning, and I, and I just heard, don't do it. And I was like, why, how, you know, what's this like, what the heck? And I just heard, don't do it. So I just said, all right, I'm not going to file, I'm just going to see what happens. And within about a week of that, I got a letter from one of the credit card companies and they said, hey, you owe us this much money and we are willing to talk to you. Now, up until that time, I had never heard of a credit card company willing to talk to you. So I called them. I said, what does this mean? <laughs> and they said, well, we will be willing to take less than what you owe us. I said, oh, how much less? They said, we can take 10% less. And that's where my Indian business upbringing kicked in. And I said, whoa, I think we are negotiating. <laughs> and I said, I will pay 25%. And they said, we'll take 75%. Long story short, we settled at 40%. Nice. And they said, the only condition is that you have to make the payment tomorrow. So I don't quite remember how I got the money, but I got the money. And then what I did was I took that letter. I said, hey, can you fax me a letter? And they faxed me a letter and then I faxed that letter to the second credit card company. Mm. And I said, hey, look what I just did. Would you be willing to do the same? And they did. Mm. They took 40% and they, so I found money. And so that way I was able to chip away and settled everything over a period of about, I don't know, three, four months or so by mm. borrowing money. It was, you know, I settled for like 47% or 45% weighted average or something. The funny thing about this was that I remember the one of the largest payments was to this credit card company and and they were being very sticky about it. So finally I got them to a point, there were two credit card company, companies actually, and I got them to the point of where they were willing to accept. And the total was 40 grand for the two of them. They were the largest ones. And I needed 40 grand. And I reached out to a friend of mine and he was in Florida and he was based in Indianapolis. And he said, that's fine, just go to my house and uh, talk to my assistant and you know she'll cut you a check for 40 grand. I mean, that just blew me away, right? Mm. Because there was no agreement, there was nothing, he just gave me the money. When I was able to, I returned him the money subsequently and you know everything was fine. And the thing that happened, which was a total surprise to me, which I didn't know and I don't think most people know, is that the credit card companies write off the full amount. So you owe to the IRS taxes on the money oh, that they wrote off. no, that's income. That's income. So when I wow. was able to um, reestablish myself starting in 2004, uh, when I did the tax return for 2003, I ended up owing to the IRS the tax on the amount that was written oh, off, which came, as a, which came as a total surprise and I didn't have the money. So there was another loop around that one. What was going on in your head during this time? Walk me through the evolution of sort of where your head was from catastrophe to scared to optimistic to committed to a future during that time and, 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 and how much time elapsed during each phase, do you think? So, I mean, really, it all started around April of 1998. And it went on till March of 2002. And in March of 2002 is when a former neighbor of mine who had just bought a company that I had a good relationship with, and he was actually an investor in my, one of the investors in my deal. 
he reached out to me and said, hey, Jay, you have a marketing background and I bought this company and uh, you know, you're know you looking to do something. I can hire you as a consultant to help me put together the marketing strategy and so on for this company. So I became, quote unquote, a chief marketing officer for this company and he started paying me a monthly retainer. And then simultaneously again, and it came out of the blue, totally unexpectedly. And then simultaneously, just about a week after that, the friend who had loaned me the money, he was the chairman of an insurance company based in Atlanta. And I had done a little bit of strategic planning work with them back in 1999 on a consulting basis. And he reached out to me and said, AJ, I know you're looking for doing something and we are at this point where we are looking for, we are going to have a transition and you can really help us. So all of a sudden I had two consulting <laughs> things going on, which started to bring cash in. Did you feel huge relief at that point or were you? Yeah, it was, it was, um, let me tell you, when you have not had uh, personal income come for a while, for like a long while, yeah, I cried when I had the first check. I remember it. It was it was it was very emotional to go to the bank to deposit the check. I drove to the bank. I wanted to make sure that I <laughs> deposited it. You were going to mail that one in? Uh-uh. No, no, no. I drove. What was the emotion you were feeling? Just gratitude, man. I mean, it's just um, because both of them happened unexpectedly. And the and the thing is the meditation outcome of not filing for bankruptcy became relevant in 2004 when over time this insurance company ended up hiring me to come on board. I ended up becoming an officer of a publicly traded insurance company. And if you have a personal bankruptcy in your record, that can never happen Mm. in financial services you can't be an officer of an insurance company if you have a personal bankruptcy ever. It's not a seven-year rule, it's ever. Right. So that was so, huge. That was inspiration. Right. There was this, it, it almost felt like events were being orchestrated for me outside of my control. And it was just the surrender and things just kept evolving let's talk about that surrender. Cause what I was asking before is like from the moment you realized you were deep in debt, had no job until things started turning around. What was that evolution of emotion and orientation to the problem? Like for you, did you go through stages? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. You know, it's, um, when did you surrender and how did you come to surrender to your situation? I didn't have a choice. <laughs> you know, well, but was, you could have bitched. And, I mean, you could have bitched and moaned, or you could have, you know, yeah. gone. You could have started. And in fact, you made some healthy choices in your life. And yeah. So, so how did all that? You know, go I, down? I, I used to smoke cigarettes, and I quit smoking. And so, you know, what happened? I I remember making a decision sometime in two thousand and one when we had moved to this apartment place. I wanted to feel the base i wanted to feel the bottom i wanted to feel like something stable and what came to me was the time when i was a teenager and i was at home and everything was great and at that time i didn't smoke i didn't drink i didn't have coffee caffeine none of that so i quit all of that Mm. and that really felt like it was I was getting in touch with my inner being and that was the kind of the start of the surrender process and and there was a former colleague of mine from uh, the job that I had in Indianapolis and he is also from India and his mom was living with him and I spent a tremendous amount of time with them. So what I will do is I'll take the kids to school 
and then drop them off and then I'll come over to my friend's house and we'll sit and have tea and talk for like three hours. And it was very therapeutic because it was, I had somebody to talk to about all of this that was going on. And his mom became like my second mom. Mm -hmm. And she really helped me not be vindictive about the divorce and just, you know, be graceful about it. And that really was extremely helpful. So what it did for me was it kept things calm for me and going through all of that, you know, just in the middle of the turmoil. So so the analogy is like I felt like I was in the eye of the storm. Like, mm. you know, in the hurricane, you see the picture from the top? Yes. I felt like I was in the eye of the storm. So there was this all this madness going around me, and I was just, I felt calm because I, there was not a whole heck of a lot I could do. I was trying, mm -hmm. but I didn't feel desperate, right? So I, I just had this feeling that everything will be fine because I just felt that my kids did not deserve to suffer. I just had this feeling that they deserved to have a good life. And the other thing is that, you know, like when I got my first check from the consulting thing, a lot of people, what I've experienced is when you are feeling a lot of financial pressure and you all of a sudden get money, the desire is to run out to the store and buy things, right? Because there's this pent up demand or you're trying to fill a, a void, right? Mm -hmm. You just go and buy things. So somehow during this process, what I had done was, because I knew I couldn't afford, you know, most of the things, I started telling myself, I can afford to buy anything I choose not to. What does that mean? So if I go to a store, instead of feeling bad that I couldn't buy it, I thought, hey, I can afford to buy it. I choose not to. Right. It was just a mind game. Yeah. And the funny thing is that years later, you know, pretty much we can buy what I want to. I choose not to. Right. I want to talk a little bit about your background and how that related to this experience. Because you talk about surrender, and it feels like a very Eastern approach to things. Yeah. Where did you grow up, and what were your home life circumstances like? So I grew up in India. You know, we are from a subculture within India. It's called Jainism. And, you know, we grew up as Jains. And the Jain principles are about being humble and being you don't pretend and you don't you know, live a simple life and not live a pretentious life. And I grew up with that. I experienced that. So there was a simplicity to experience of growing up. Having said that, there was a part of me that wanted to rebel against all of that. So, you know, Jains are, they don't eat any meat. They're nonviolent. They don't drink alcohol they don't smoke you know it's it's a very very uh, straightforward type of a of living so i i rebelled against all of that you know i did all of that i i i wanted to go the other way is that only when you came to the demon united states of america or yeah pretty much <laughs> <laughs> but but score you know, one more right but remember way to assimilate <laughs> yeah yeah way, way to assimilate exactly and and you know the in growing up in india we didn't have uh opportunities of meeting women meeting girls right mm -hmm. so coming to the states that was i was 22 and i came I just turned 22, and it was like, wow, <laughs> this this place is amazing, you know. And there was a there was a point I remember, I said to myself, I love this country. God bless I'm, America. I'm, God bless America, right? So, <laughs> yeah. So, so it just went on. So I floated out there, right? I created all these experiences flying around, meeting people, hobnobbing with all these people. And, you know, there was all this stuff going on. And when all of that got peeled away, I was searching for what was the base? Mm -hmm. What was the base? And the base was the experiences growing up in, in that culture. Young AJ was still there. 
Yeah, yeah. Young AJ was still there. How many people were in your house growing up? Well, <laughs> so when... And how many we, toilets did they all share? Yeah, so that's a funny story. It's your measure of success. This is the famous Paul Ollinger toilets per person ratio. Right. So it will shock you that when my father moved back to our hometown, I was uh, eight, and we were just talking. He and I were just talking, and... You know, I had counted 32 people living in the family house. What? And there were two toilets. Oh, my gosh. And he didn't believe me. I said, let's count. <laughs> so we went through family after family, and we counted 32 people, and there were two toilets. So the ratio was 0.067, and now I have six toilets, and there's two of us, my wife and I. So by that measure, my <laughs> life is 4,500% better during that time materially right materially i bet you could lose a toilet and still feel pretty good about your life i feel great about my <laughs> life you know, it's like it's just look around it's beautiful how did you find your way to the united states it just happened in india there's generally a lack of resources there's just too many people when i was a teenager i got bullied in my neighborhood and at school also because i had a fairer skin and my eyes were brown and As opposed to? Generally black eyes, mm. right? So I just got, that was a something people picked on me about. And, you know, I was different. I just was different. And anything that is different is threatening to other people. So they would pick on me. So I came to a point where it occurred to me that the only way I'm going to get out of this place is to do well in school and get out. So I did well in high school and ended up going to college and I did very well there. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I ended up coming to a university in Delhi, Delhi School of Economics, which is a very prestigious school. And where what I experienced there was that almost everybody that was going to the program was planning to leave India was going to either the US or the UK or Australia or somewhere else for pursuing higher education. People want to do their MBAs or PhDs. You know, as that journey was going on, my life was great. You know, everything just happened for me. There was not a whole lot of setbacks or any bad experiences just kept evolving and and I got the visa to come to the United States. I got the permission from the Reserve Bank of India to get dollars, which was very, very difficult. What does that mean? India had a restricted currency at the time. This is in 1982. And you couldn't just go and buy US dollars to come to the United States to pay tuition and things like that, right? So you had to get the the permission from the Reserve Bank of India to get the dollars. Wow. And, I mean, our family was not that wealthy, but, you know, my father said, you go do your thing, I will figure this out. So he gave me a check for paying the tuition. But when I came here, the professor from my bachelor's time, who had his son in the United States at a university in Buffalo, he sort of took me under his wing and he helped me get a scholarship. Mm. But the funny thing is that, you know, I got the scholarship which included tuition waiver and a stipend of like $370 a month. So, you know, and I was living with four other Indians. So we ate a lot of potatoes, rice and, and had milk, you know, and we took cooking turns and all that stuff. But I was distracted in the first semester, right? Because of girls. <laughs> because, you know, I had never experienced that. So I got put on a little bit of a probation at the end of the first semester, which meant my GPA was below 3.0. Because of girls. Because primarily of that. <laughs> and then the associate dean, I remember this so clearly in 1983 in January, I'm sitting across from her and she looked at me and she said, Ambuj, you know, she called me my, my full name. Yes. She's like, what happened? And I said, 
doctor so-and-so, please give me another chance. And I promise. And that was like the turning point because I realized that I had to become responsible. And if I screwed up, I had to go back. Right. So then I stepped it up and, you know, did well in MBA. And then as I was doing the MBA, I was asked to consider doing a PhD. And again, just organically, it just happened. And so I did that. And then when you do a PhD, then the natural path of an Indian <laughs> at the time was to do a PhD and become a professor. Mm -hmm. So I went into being a professor. And you taught marketing at uh, SMU. SMU in Dallas, yeah. So you taught at SMU and then you went on to Deloitte. When I joined SMU, in teaching, the way I understood it was you get teaching awards and you publish in the top journals and you're good. Right. So I got teaching awards and I published in the top journals and it was good. The thing is, then you repeat it. So I repeated it and then you repeat it again. So within three years of being there, I was like, this is not what I signed up for. There's <laughs> no excitement in this. So I started doing consulting work and grew a consulting practice, which then I intersected with some people from Deloitte at a client and they wanted me to come on board. So I kind of took all my clients into Deloitte and that is where I met somebody who had this one client in Indianapolis. So I was flying from Dallas. I was in Dallas at the time. Yep. I was flying from Dallas to Indianapolis. And, you know, I was coming to have this meeting with this company, a timeshare exchange company. Yep. And I didn't know anything about racing. I didn't know anything about timeshare exchanging. I didn't know anything about Indianapolis. But here I was coming to have a meeting with the president of the company. And that company, its owner, sold the company during that year to this conglomerate that and was very rapidly growing. And the president was going to become the CEO, and he asked me to come on board. So I ended up coming on board. And it took some time for me to make that decision, but I ended up coming on board. And it was very exciting and scary because all of a sudden I had a staff to manage and I had never done that before. Like, you know, really have a staff, you know, in the U.S. combined, you know, it's like I think about 150 people that reported into me. And there was a big budget and we traveled around the world and, mm -hmm. you know, worked with timeshare developers and, and hotels, bringing them into the timeshare business and all that. So it was... Um, it was um, Pretty daunting, actually. <laughs> to all of a sudden have a lot of revenue and a lot of responsibility. Yeah, yeah. And you told me this off mic, but that was the company where you left and you didn't exercise your options. Yeah. And then some very bad news hit the wire. And this was before you even started your dot-com. What was the bad news that happened? That our parent company had merged with another company and created a combined entity. And what came out three, four months after the merger was finalized, that the other company had been cooking their books. And the market value of the combined company went down by $25 billion or something in one day. So basically what that meant was my stock options went from all the money that I had to zero overnight. Mm -hmm. And it never recovered. So that was even before you lost your lost your ass in the dot-com. Yes, uh, thank you for reminding me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you had had some experience with disappointment prior to this, but when it really got bad was in that phase from not that losing presumably millions of dollars in, in the money options. Yeah isn't terrible but you're still not destitute right but in 2001 or in 1999 through 2002 you basically experienced this lack of solvency that you had never fathomed before right remember i am from 
a different country. I'm an immigrant. I am educated. I've had a successful career. I am known for my mind and accomplishments. And so there's a certain amount of pride in that. Is there extra pressure on you because of that? On myself, yeah. As a white guy, if I fail, nobody cares. <laughs> yeah, right. That's, well, that's actually, just expected, right? Uh, it actually is. You know, when, when you leave, um, and I don't know if other immigrants feel this, but I think immigrants in general have this feeling that, you know, you left home. So first of all, there's judgment around that. And then you come and do nothing with your life. That's really bad. So who are you worried about judging you? Your family, people back home, or people around you in the States? Both. I think it's both. We're going to go back to the end of the dark period. You got some consulting jobs, and then you were invited to come on full-time into a pretty big job. Yeah. So that was a, over a period of two years. And, you know, the serendipity of things kept happening during the time I remember one day I was talking to my son and he said, Papa, I miss being in a neighborhood. I don't know if he meant or what he meant, but the idea of quote unquote in a neighborhood was something that he missed. So by this time I had been consulting for about a year and the company in Atlanta, the CEO, the new CEO, he had said to me, hey, you're doing a lot of work for us. You know, I'd like for you to move to Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, kids are in school. I'm good in Indianapolis. So I was kind of this, doing this commute thing going on. I was visiting a friend of mine in New York, and I mentioned something to him about you know, what my son said. And he said, buy a house. I said, how? My credit score is literally like, I don't even know what it is. It's terrible. I have no money because I still had not you know, saved enough money. He said, I'll buy it and you just service the, the mortgage. You've yeah. got good friends, man. People keep lending you money. Exactly. That is my point that through your actions and your behaviors and your decisions, that you make throughout your life, you sow these seeds that you never know where and when you will need them. And it's really the generosity of really amazing people that helps you get through some very difficult times. Mm. I'm a living example of that. So, you know, he helped me buy the house. We moved there. And then a year goes by, the Atlanta guys, they were like, listen, you have to move. To Atlanta, and I'm like, I don't know. So we were at a planning meeting in Vegas. He gave me an envelope in which was an offer letter. Like, wow. He said, you need to decide either you're moving or you are, you know, we can't continue to do this because you're so involved. So I flew back to Indianapolis, and as I was going through the mail, there was a handwritten note in our mailbox and it said, if you know of someone that wants to sell a house in this neighborhood, we're interested. <laughs> and I was like, what? So I called them. And they said, do you have any pictures? And I said, no, I don't have any pictures. So I, you know, there was no iPhones at the time. So I had to borrow somebody's camera, take some pictures, send them these pictures. Long story short, they bought the house. So from the time I was able to do that to the time I moved to Atlanta, and bought a house was a very short, I think it was like two or three weeks, a couple of weeks. Wow. And in order for me to buy a house, that's another story. Because now I wanted to buy a house on my own because I had a job and I had a paycheck. But my credit was bad. And that's where the CFO of the company called the bank, the bank that the company did business with, and said, listen, one of our guys is moving and he has a, an issue with his credit, can you help him? And the bank sent somebody to my office who helped me do the mortgage application and called their mortgage people. And they said, how much money do you need? 
Uh, and you guys must have had a lot of money on deposit with that bank. We did. We, did. we were an insurance company, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. so there was quite a bit of money. I was able to get a mortgage, and I didn't have enough down payment money, so they gave me another loan for the down payment. And I mean, it's just like, wow, this is an amazing life that just keeps happening for me, right? And then the company grew. And So what year is that that you moved to Atlanta? 2004. Okay. And in about a minute, what happened over the next 10 years? We had a phenomenal growth in the company. We acquired other smaller companies. We acquired teams of underwriters. And, you know, by 2013, we had grown the balance sheet quite significantly, about a thousand percent increase in, in our balance sheet. And uh, so the company was sold in 2013 to a Canadian conglomerate for pretty decent amount of money so you had a big exit yeah i mean not all mine but sure no but 10 years after or 12 years after having nothing and not really knowing what was going to happen with life yeah you make enough money to retire right and really figure out what i want to do with my life you know so that's so this is a pretty crazy 360 degree story and not that 12 years is a short amount of time but it's not forever either Right. I've talked a lot recently to some younger people about careers, and a lot of times I think people think about careers going straight up and to the right, and that there's never any interruptions. But indeed, there have been some pretty crazy interruptions oh, it's, on yeah. your way to being yeah, the, materially it, successful. Yeah, there is absolutely no way that you can have a linear progression your entire life. You are going to have some bad things happen. It's mm-hmm. how you deal with it, how you react to it is what defines what happens and ultimately you know how you feel uh, about where you're at and you know funnily enough i had i never felt afraid of money till i had money that i could actually lose so you're more afraid of it now than you were i became more afraid of losing what i had and then you know, now I'm at a point where I am not generating active revenue from my own activities. You know, we get investment income and so on. Sure. And neither you know, my wife. I, my wife has a job, and you know, she is a school principal. And you know, it's um, it's taken me some time to work through the fear that I have felt of not making money from my actions, you know, it's kind of hard. And where do you sit with that today? Or how do you mollify that, that feeling? I have accepted it and it's not like a negative. You know, I feel blessed that I have an opportunity to look at opportunities, look at investments, mentor people. You know, I started, uh, uh, Nonprofit in 2016, mm-hmm. feed a billion. We have provided meals, five and a half million meals. We have funded five and a half million meals in, you know, India, Kenya, and the United States here at home. It's fantastic. It's a journey. It's just evolution of, I don't know where we are going. I don't know where, how things will evolve. There are times when I get a little concerned about, do we have enough money? to live for the rest of our lives. It's not a rational fear because technically, yes, we do. But on an irrational emotional basis, there's like, you know, what can happen? And I can I can only see how people that are retiring or nearing retirement, you know, they are going through the same emotions. So there's really, when I look back at at this whole journey of starting out to where I'm at now, this whole period of really essentially about 37 years, it's been like intense. (laughs) Uh, It's been intense. How do you define success? How I define success now (laughs) compared to how I used to, is really having the opportunity and the freedom 
to create and share experiences with the people that I love and the people that I that love me. And and I feel very blessed to be able to do that, to go take a vacation or for the people to come and visit and I'm able to spend time with them. You know, like my parents came and they stayed with us for a, a while and I was able to be 100% present mm. with them. And my life was just spending time with them. Yeah, And it's just beautiful, you know, to be able to do that and be able to spend time with my wife and you know make her breakfast and pack her lunch and just things like that so but and i'm doing other things you know my yeah. things because what? by my nature i can't sit still do you feel rich today i feel rich yes i feel rich what does that mean to you being able to do um really whatever i mean it's a double edged sword so you know, people want freedom. They want to become entrepreneurs because they want freedom and, and they don't want to work and so on. Let me tell you, when you literally have nothing that you have to do, it requires a level of discipline to want to do something, which you, we don't train for. No. You know, because we train for a job. We train for a paycheck. We train for creating a retirement nest egg yes okay you do that then what do you do that's why i'm doing this podcast right that's you know, why i mean i went nuts after i quit working for a while yeah. it's the first six months are great and then you lose your goddamn mind right yeah you do <laughs> because it's like because you, you know you're a high achiever you've had a successful career i've been around and and accomplished a lot of things and the other thing is, I want to share. I want to share my experiences to help people who are going through these journeys. And I want to say, own it. Own what you have. Don't feel bad about what you don't have. You know, just focus on what you can build and construct instead of pining about what you don't have. Because it will come. Along those lines, I really am fascinated about recovering from major short-term setbacks. What would you tell people who are in the midst of watching their worlds fall apart around them? It's very easy to feel overwhelmed with everything that we experience, especially when it's really unexpected bad things, right? And the way to go through all of that is literally to take one step at a time take one event at a time, take one day at a time. When people say, you know, this proverbial take one day at a time, literally that's all you can do because you don't know <laughs> how the next day is going to, f to work out, right? Yeah. So you just kind of go through that. And there is no excessive amount of time planning for the future and what will happen and what won't happen. And, and you, honestly, going through some of those intense experiences, what it has done for me is really helped me get more focused on the present, what's going on right now, as opposed to thinking about what happened and how it happened and really feeling bad about all of that or getting anxious and anxiety about what is going to happen. The only thing that is here is now and just... I'm grateful, to be honest with you, because of the experiences that I've had. Is it, it helped me see things and realize things that I never thought that I needed to realize. And it's beautiful in that. Let's talk about Feedabillion. Is that what you want to spend the rest of your working years building and pointing to as the last accomplishment? Not the last, but the, yeah. the biggest accomplishment of the next phase of your life? That's one part of what I want. What I want is really help people see that they can do their feed a billion, that they can do whatever it is that they think is hard to do, that you can do it. If I, growing up with two toilets for 32 people, can <laughs> do what I have been able to do by just going through the process and doing one thing at a time and just taking the steps and allowing for things to happen and come 
anybody else can do it, you know. And I just want to spread that. And part of the reason why I wanted to do this podcast is because this is a story of this swing that I had that I have not really talked about very much. And I think it is something that helps people. It has the potential to help people. I agree, and that's why I wanted you to tell the story, because understanding that you can lose everything that or appear to lose everything yeah. lose all your material things anyway yeah and that you can come back from that is an inspiring tale yeah, thank and you I, and i appreciate you sharing it with our listeners thank you if anybody is interested in finding out more about you where can they find you really linkedin aj jane is one option or feed a billion you know just aj at feedabillion.org people can send me an email and i will definitely take the time to respond. Cool. And connect. Thanks for joining us, AJ. Appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. AJ, thank you for sharing your story with us. You're an inspiration to me, and I greatly appreciate making yourself vulnerable and sharing the story of some of your toughest times and all you did to rediscover yourself in the process of surviving that. Really, really cool stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, what else can I tell you? Hey, did I mention that you can rate and share this podcast with your friends? Absolutely. Why don't you take a second to do that? That would be very helpful to us here at the Crazy Money Podcast, Chibol, located in suburban Atlanta, Georgia. Also, if you're interested, I tell jokes in public sometimes. And if you'd like to find out where I'm doing that, you can find that out at paulollinger.com slash events. I'll be in Ohio in December. I'll be maybe in New York next week in November uh, and then around Atlanta in the interim. Thank you very much to my producer and editor and friend, Mike Carano. I got to go to spin class. See ya.